Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And on this podcast, we tell stories, see? Big stories. Stories for the people with ideas and fireworks and dancing. But on ice, it's a nice podcast, see? I guess that's your Jimmy Stewart impression? <laughs> I uh, I feel like I have the cadence and the attitude, but the voice, the the actual vocality of it, the tonality of it, it's not as, as good. Yeah, but... it's not it's not quite there. It's not quite there yet. I feel like maybe you'll stick to the the character actor B impressions <laughs> yeah. that you've been doing so well thus far. Yeah, yeah. Maybe if I uh, go back and watch this, you know, one of the promoters probably talks like yeah. this. So. Yeah, you, you got yeah, that so. one. You got that one down, really. <laughs> so in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1939, possibly the greatest year in the history of cinema. We're going to keep uh, investigating that. But if it is, it is certainly not because of the movie that we are about <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> which is the biggest flop of the year. It's called The Ice Follies of 1939. And in a year when virtually every movie that we're covering in, in each episode is like a, an acknowledged classic of cinema, this is not. It's probably the only one where maybe every listener is thinking, what the <laughs> hell is this movie? <laughs> and And that's a fair... Uh, response to it i think uh i i don't think this is going to be a long episode the, the, you know as far as plots go this is one of the flimsiest that we've uh had from a film it is it is and yeah i will say that that this was a bit of a challenge as we were coming up with the lineup to talk about and as we mentioned last episode when we kind of switched up one of our categories that was the first feature that we usually do, and we switched it to just the major filmmaker to talk about Stagecoach. This was another category where I wasn't sure if we could make it happen, but uh, was able to find some potentially interesting sounding failures. And this, to me, seemed like something that could be an amusing boondoggle to discuss. But uh, we'll see if that turns out to be correct. Yeah, nobody picks failures quite like you, Josh. Yeah. Well, I feel like um as as we said in our opening episode when we we're talking about the box office champion, it's tough to find accurate box office figures really for any year before the 1980s, but especially as you go even further back. So the idea of a movie that failed at the box office is not exactly always easy to discern. And of course, a movie that nobody really cared about 80 plus years ago is not necessarily one that we're learning about or knowing about now. But um, we have this film here. It does seem to have been a pretty good size box office failure. And it is a failure in the sort of sense of, of hubris in a way that we've talked about with other more notable box office failures. According to the numbers that I found basically from Wikipedia, which is citing some some book that I did not read. But so you, that you didn't cite while picking the citation? No, up? no. Uh, grossed about $1.2 million on its budget of $1.1 million. So that's not as huge a failure as some. But MGM, the studio that released it, reported a loss of $343,000 
on this film, which is a pretty large amount in 1939. So it was a failure for MGM. And I think even more than that, it was clearly positioned to be, you know, the, the 1939 equivalent of like a franchise launch. It was inspired by potentially a competitor studios series of successful films, ice skating films starring uh, Sonia Henny, who was a Norwegian Olympic figure skating champion and somehow starred in like eight to 10 very successful movies in which she played an ice skater and somehow incorporated ice skating into the film. Well, she's a gold Olympic gold medalist, right? And you know what what was smart about casting her as a skater is uh she could skate. <laughs> so. Right. And uh I've never seen those films, but it seems like maybe in contrast here, I assume what you mean to Joan Crawford, who cannot skate. Sonia Henney could skate, but perhaps could not act. None of the three leads could uh skate in this one. But I think, you know, again, 1939, right? So we're not watching the Olympics on TV, right? So how are you seeing these dazzling displays? It makes sense, as uh, especially as almost like a roadshow movie, right? You take this on the tour, maybe she shows up uh, and you get to see the greatest skater in the world, which you wouldn't have access to otherwise. That's true. Yeah, people would have only seen the Olympics in like newsreels and stuff like that. Just short highlights, probably. So that is a good point. And I haven't seen those Sonia Henny movies. I don't think those are movies that really anybody watches these days, but uh, maybe maybe they're worth seeing. I don't know. Jason, did you watch a Sonia Henny movie? I bet you didn't. I didn't, but um, I, uh, I have watched my fair share of figure skating over the years. Um, you know, uh, I, can I still pull off a triple axle? Maybe not, but a triple Lutz? Sure. Yeah. I, I'd like to see that. I think that would be more entertaining than than this film. So you remember that great SNL sketch where they're doing the pairs figure skating and Chris Farley is the male, uh, might have been Victoria Jackson or whoever, but he just kept falling and sliding all over the ice. Yeah. And it's an all time. I don't think I've seen that one, but I, I can picture it already in my mind. <laughs> it's uh, funny. I, I, promise. I bet I bet that it is. I bet that it is. Fat guy fall down is usually funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you're going to do fat guy fall down, you, you you use a guy who has the physicality of Farley. You know, right. That's that's gold, right? There. Right. Yes. Much like Sonia Henny, that's gold. <laughs> yes. Just tying it all in there. Um, and so not only was this potentially sort of a, a, a ripoff of Sonia Henny films, but it was also designed as a showcase for the real life ice follies the international ice follies a touring show that had been launched in 1936 and was very popular and so to me watching this i was like this seems like one of those movies where there's some sort of pop culture sensation or or like a, a youth fad or whatever and some studio executive is like how can we make this into a movie and you know it's like when they made movies about the lombada or something and somebody is like yeah what is this ice follies thing that people are going to let's make it into a movie yeah, I mean, we still have stuff like that today every year right. with uh, whatever is coming up. International Ice Folly is founded by Roy and Eddie Shipstad, and Oscar Johnson was the other big dancer. All three of them appeared in this film. And did you know today that the this group, wherever whoever it was sold to or whatever iteration is, it is now uh, currently produces Disney on Ice, Josh? Yeah, I mean, so it's not only a successful group 
at that time, but sort of adapted and adjusted and remained successful all these decades later. Because you watch the the ice when we get to the ice production, the actual show that uh, Jimmy Stewart's character supposedly has designed, it's not so good. <laughs> and um, I guess though, people in 1939. Uh, not on screen, but in person, we're into watching that stuff. Uh, also, not really. I mean, look, we just talked about Stagecoach and that great sequence of the kind of chase through Monument Valley with the Apaches and the Stagecoach. Like, And that was an exciting, innovative way to shoot this. So you're watching this and you're like, this is a very bland, boring way to shoot these ice follies. You know, the, I wanted more dynamic camera work and movement to give me the the feel josh right no i i totally agree and as i was watching those sequences i was thinking like if these had been staged by busby berkeley or something like that you know who was working around the same time it would have been at least visually interesting whereas now it just feels like filler yeah i mean they finally go to that big overhead shot the the busby berkeley shot right and you're like finally <laughs> you know where was this i wanted to see the depth of uh field here and you know kind of how these all these dancers fit in as a whole into the environment and it's just shot in a very static way where you don't get to see those dimensions yeah it's really it's really underwhelming and it goes on for so long it needs to have something more to grab you and it it just really really doesn't and director uh, Reinhold Schunzel was not exactly one of 1939's top filmmakers either. So, you know, they didn't get the top talent here to, to, to come up with something visually interesting. Yeah, but he did, you know, he was a working filmmaker. He made films in uh, Germany and uh, I think in West Germany after the war. And uh, he also acted in movies like Notorious. Yeah, he was, uh, it seems like maybe more uh, of an actor than a director, or more prolific as an actor. But yeah, I mean, his career had gone all the way back to the 1910s in Germany. So he certainly had a lot of experience, but he wasn't, you know, he's, again, he's not a top talent. He's not one of these filmmakers from this classic. I mean, there's so many titans of filmmaking here in this era working in Hollywood, and he is, he's not one of them. Yeah, okay. So I agree with you on that. But um Let's just say this, uh, even if those ice dances were shot in um, a uh, more compelling way, it's still a very flimsy script here, right? So I don't, I think that it could have been elevated a little more, but I think this maybe was doomed from page before it even got to the screen. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And the, the non-ice scenes, the, the, just the character stuff, maybe could have been stronger with another director, but it definitely starts with this really kind of crappy script. So um, critics at the time were also not particularly enamored of this film. Frank S. Nugent in the New York Times said, Ice Follies isn't altogether a spectacle picture. It also has a plot, and one which, if you will excuse our saying so, has been put on ice too late. Far be it from us to rap one of Mr. Rapp's more glittering productions. What we mildly object to is the fact that the glitter does not extend to the dialogue, the incidents, the characters, for whom fictitious is an understatement, or the story, which is the one about the matrimonial clashing of two careers. And how brilliant yet harmonious both turn out to be, finally, with James Stewart producing the pictures and with Joan Crawford starring in them while that top-flight motion picture mogul Lewis Stone 
remember what we said about the characters, looks benignly on. Miss Crawford, Mr. Stewart, Lou Ayers, Mr. Stone, and the others do as well as could be expected with such roles. The ice skating is nice, and the first picture Mr. Stewart produces is all in Technicolor. Oh, you want to be a movie star? Who's going to cook me my dinner? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that... That kind of story, as as here Frank Nugent is pointing out when he's like, oh, yeah, it's that one again. It was not uncommon <laughs> in this period, but it is it is especially clumsily presented here. <laughs> the idea of, oh, a woman with a career. How could that possibly uh, be acceptable? To be stored, one of the um, not most not only most famous movie stars, but one of the most well liked. Right. Like he. As far as the characters, he's got that kind of like, oh, he's your next door neighbor. Everyone loves this guy and roots for this guy. But in today's context, he really negs his wife quite a bit, doesn't he? So. He does. I mean, he's really uh, he's really awful about it and, and really insensitive and selfish. But the movie presents that as essentially like the correct idea, because, of course, the big kind of climactic moment for their relationship is when she who has she's become this big movie star while he's he's also become hugely successful yeah. right it's one thing when he kind of resents her for being successful while he's still like toiling away at his dream of creating the ice follies but once the ice follies are a massive sensation and he's presumably raking it in and also i would have to imagine probably making more money than she is because he like owns the ice follies right he's producing this what will become a nationally touring thing right exactly he still is like all bitter about it and so she has to go on national what seems to be like a national radio broadcast and renounce her career so she can stay home with her man and it's only when that uh, studio executive that he mentions hires jimmy stewart too that she's allowed to continue to have a career yeah and you kind of pointed this out it's not like oh this is um one big miss because they went a totally different direction than a lot of other movies of this time this was a recurring thing like woman be in the kitchen woman come on you know so yes it was and there are there are plenty of comedies that have elements of that and you can still like and are still enjoyable or they find uh, there's connect genuine connections between the characters within that context, and you can better understand why these people might act this way. But these characters are so poorly developed that it, it makes no sense. I mean, Dave told me that was his favorite part because he relates to it. Well, with his wife wanting a career, and he's all like, "Well, who's going to make me my keto, my keto sandwiches?" Absolutely. <laughs> Dave still still pursuing his dream of the uh, podcast on ice. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. That's how we're gonna. Big stories on ice. Dave. Take it to on the next ice. level. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, Variety in their typically uh, unbylined review said Metro successfully accomplishes the difficult task of welding two rather extended appearances of the International Ice Follies troupe into this production while keeping both story and ice show in separate grooves. Joan Crawford has a clear cut role. She takes full advantage of opportunities to be sincere and glamorous. But as the title suggests, it's the ice show and spectacle that count, chock full of specialities and decidedly eye-appealing. Story is only a framework. Rather light, it would have had trouble unfolding on its own for seven reels. If you had never seen Joan Crawford in a movie and you saw her in this one first, you wouldn't think 
oh, she's going to be the biggest movie star of her time or one of them. Not that she does a bad job, but there's just not much for her to do. Right. And despite what what Variety is saying, she was really undercut. And they mentioned this later in the Variety review that she had apparently all these musical numbers. I mean, they talk about how her character is like a singer. You know, she's not an ice skater. She's really a singer. And uh, for whatever reason, the producers cut um, all basically all those musical numbers, except sort of a brief song that's at the end in the in the fake movie within the movie. And so as and then they dubbed her voice, even in what they left in. Right. So as a right. showcase for her, they kind of they kind of undercut it. I agree with you on that. I mean, it's really um, Jimmy Stewart's uh, movie here and, and more about kind of how he, everything, even when he's not the center of the attention, how he reacts to that. Right. But on the other hand, I think also if you had never seen or heard of Jimmy Stewart and you watch this movie you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, this guy's going to be a huge star either. Right. He, he, he's annoying. And that's <laughs> yes. not, I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of that is the character. Not to say he doesn't have charm as an actor, obviously, but that character is annoying. He is. I mean, and from the very beginning when he's so selfish and, and like rude and unpleasant, you know, when he quits there or he doesn't quit their gig, right? They get fired and then he just lies to Joan Crawford for no reason. Like, oh yeah, I quit. We're too good for this thing. Or not, we're too good for it, right? I'm too good for it. You just do whatever I say, lady, and you'll be fine. You know, and it's like, oh, this is a terrible introduction to this guy. <laughs> uh, and that, that again goes back to just a ill-conceived script. Yes. So finally, um, I don't know, like, this is one of these where there's just initials as, as the byline. I tried to find the actual name of this person, but I couldn't. So RWD in the New York Herald Tribune said, since some kind of story was needed to lead up to the film debut of the International Ice Follies and top flight players to give it the necessary publicity gloss, Joan Crawford, James Stewart, and Lou Ayers were given the unenviable job of trying to make it digestible. Their acting is smart and likable. Their material is not. Miss Crawford should avoid this type of film in the future when she has to buck poor material, a group of specialists, and Metro's own lavishness. Of course, that's from the great critic Randolph William Duvernay. RW. <laughs> that's a that's a convincing sounding uh, name that that person could have been. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Sometimes in the past. Uh, in like our 1953 season, I, I did some research and found these people's actual names when they're bylined like that. But this one I could not find. So that bit about how Crawford should be avoiding movies like this. Uh, I'm guessing you read this, too, that like after this film came out, there was a um, talk about some sexism, although it's funny to bring this up uh, because of uh, and I'll tell you why, Josh. But there was an article, I think it was probably in Variety, where they named a bunch of female stars who they considered uh box office poison did you read about that yeah i mean that's a fairly i i mean even though it was a bunch of other people it's a fairly famous like moment in joan crawford's career yeah marlena dietrich uh, may west katherine hepburn and the reason i think it's funny is because literally david your popcorn and puzzle pieces group we were having an argument yesterday with someone who said that the marvels was uh wrapped because it was uh, female-led and not just because it was a crappy movie. So it's interesting to see that those type of arguments are still going on. Although I'm going to say the Marvels had many other problems. I don't, I don't think it's because it was led by females. Can we say that the Marvels is better than the Ice Follies? 
Can we? I I, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I I will. I will go out. I will. I will make a bold assertion that I liked the Marvels more than I liked. I this think they're film. about even ground, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, but you know, yeah. All right. Um, this is uh, a sh- uh, you know about thirty minutes shorter, so it has that's action. True. That yeah. is true. It is yeah. very short because they cut all those musical numbers. I the interesting thing too about that is that I mean both in that article saying that Joan Crawford needs to pick better roles and also in that article of of in variety about box office poison is that at this time almost no one even the biggest of stars was able to choose their roles people were under contract to studios they appeared in whatever movie the studio told them to appear in and they could lobby for better work but it didn't it wasn't until the the contract system of the studios was broken in like uh, the 60s i think that actors were really able to choose their roles to that degree. So to blame her or Jimmy Stewart or anyone for picking or for, for choosing to be in this Ice Follies movie is 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 wrong. You know, they were told, hey, here's what you're doing next. You're going to be in the Ice Follies movie. And that's what they did. And she was so unhappy with this film and a few more unpopular movies that she bought her contract out uh for five hundred thousand dollars and that's when people uh just assumed she was going into retirement uh, for her big comeback uh with the academy award for best actress in 1945 for mildred pierce yeah she she left mgm and um seemed to be kind of washed up but was not so i'm gonna assume that none of us had ever seen or even heard of this film (laughs) I think I probably have heard of it when we look at box office bombs of all time. You know, this yeah. is always up there. So, um, but I had never seen it. Yeah, I had not. I don't. I had not even heard of it in, until I was trying to figure out what is a flop from 1939. And I think when I saw the the title, I was amused and figured, okay, this is going to be something to talk about—a folly, if you mm-hmm. will, of oh, a nice. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, Dave, I, I'm guessing this is no. not on your radar either. Not a chance. No, fair enough. So uh, anything else, Jason, that you want to mention about the background of this film? Stories, Josh. Oh, nice. You keep working on that Jimmy Stewart impression, <laughs> and we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on the ice follies of 1939. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we're talking about the flop of the year, The Ice Follies of 1939. And I feel like just with that title, too, you can tell that this was meant to be a franchise because there was this whole weird trend around this era where movies had of whatever year in their title. And this was a way to sort of like launch a franchise. And you know they wanted to make The Ice Follies of 1940 or that they thought they would be. and, And there are not. Ice Follies of any other year. Yeah, I mean, and leaving it off on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yes. Where they're skating in a different universe. It's a multiverse of Ice Follies. Right, it's a, right. That's a lot for us to intake. There, the Ice Josh. Follies Cinematic Universe or uh, IFCU. Is, uh, <laughs> something we really missed out on. Yeah, RWD could have talked about the IFCU and what of uh, maybe the NYT. And uh, we would have had a, a whole lot of figuring out to do yeah mm-hmm. so did you like anything about this movie uh short 
<laughs> it is short. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I think maybe just because they cut those musical numbers and, and it ended up being so short after that. I, I mean, look, it's always nice. You know, these are legends of the screen, even if this isn't their best vehicles. Um, it's nice to see that, you know, to to see them do whatever, <laughs> whatever it is a, that they do. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's not the best thing. I like Lewis Stone as Tolliver. I thought he was the standout of this thing. Yeah, he's a very, I mean, he was, he was a a very prolific character actor in this era and he gets that kind of like sort of avuncular, dignified older man thing going, which I'm sure he was much nicer than an actual studio executive in 1939. Yeah. You wonder are all these characters, are they always based on like Lou Wasserman, right? Right. Um, But he does have that kind of like we're going to give you a screen test. And then after that, we'll see where you fit. And, you know, it just kind of goes, he, he plays that character in a very convincing manner. Yes. Yeah, he does. I mean, this is, you know, just like the big stars, obviously all of those kind of B-level people or whatever, were also just going wherever the studio told them and they come in and they kind of make the most of whatever their little character is. I mean, you, you did your, your little impression there of the, the manager, the agent character played by Lionel Stander, who has a kind of distinctive voice. And I, I've when he showed up, I was like, oh, I've seen this guy in other you know movies I've seen from the 30s and 40s playing basically the same character with that with that voice. And, you know, he shows up and he gives it all he's got in this little nothing role because that's what you do at that time. And so there's there's some pleasures to be had from watching that stuff. Yeah. And I mean, another trend that um, you see a lot in movies like this is like, a married couple with a roommate, right? right. You know, yeah. uh, and it's the best friend, but there's always a roommate and, you know, was, I'm not needed here anymore. You guys got your own thing going on, right? And then in the big, you know, towards the end of act two, it's like, Eddie, it's you. Well, I've been wondering what happened to you, you know, and they always reunite or whatever. Right. I mean, in this case, that's Lou Ayer's character and he is the, the, platonic ice skating partner of uh of jimmy stewart's character which i have to assume is partially inspired by like the actual creators of the real ice follies who were were two dudes um or three i think so yeah. you know something in there but right the idea is that they've they've been pursuing their dream of arts on ice or whatever the hell it is that they're trying to create for all these years and then joan crawford comes in and she's like the Yoko Ono of this ice duo, right? Mm. She she breaks them up and uh, distracts Jimmy Stewart. And now he's got this big dream. And so his partner leaves to go do his own thing. But but then, yeah, they, they and there's not even because it's such a short movie. There's very little time that elapses in between those moments that you're talking about. Like when he's like, I guess I'm not needed. And he leaves. And then Jimmy Stewart is like, look, it's you. It's like two scenes later. <laughs> Yeah, the only conflicts here are one, Jimmy Stewart's character is losing all his money trying to figure out how to put on this ice show. And two, Joan Crawford becomes a movie star and Jimmy Stewart's ego can't handle it, right? right. So those are the only two. Um, yeah, so that, so otherwise everything just always gets resolved. And I think when you're talking about like the scene where he leaves, there's very little resistance, right? Of like, don't leave. And then he's like, but I got to go. And he's like, all right, you go then, you know? And I think we get a lot of that in this movie. And it's when you're talking about flimsy, even, you know, I keep joking around about how he wants to tell stories and this and that. Like, I think we needed a better explanation of 
what he sees in his head as like what these ice follies can be and why they're so important and why he's working so hard to, um, you know, what is he trying to do that's so different than other ice shows, right? And why is his vision so important? Like I needed, I needed some of that, like that whiplash style, meticulous explanation of what it actually could be if he executed it. Right. And when he talks about it, like other characters are so blown away, like that, that agent character, right. It's just like, this is the most brilliant idea I've ever heard. And he has this whole bit where he like fakes a phone call that he's going to get them financing. And Jimmy Stewart leaves to go send a telegram. And the the partner guy is there and realizes that it was a fake phone call. And he asked the agent why. And and I feel like in another movie this way, it would be some like shady guy who's going to like ruin them or whatever. And the agent's just like, no, no, no. This is the most brilliant idea I've ever heard. I had to do this so that I could keep it and, you know, make it happen. And no matter what, I'll get the money. And then there there is no scene where he actually gets the money, right? No, no sense of how it might be difficult. Just cut right to the ice follies are a success. I I think that, yeah, the way he got the money was like the idea of like, we're going to sell out houses all over the place. And then they do, right? But we never, uh, uh, on the flip side of that coin, we never get the scene where uh, Jimmy Stewart's character finds out that this guy was like, pulling something off underneath his nose, so to speak. And then they have their like, but I did it for you, kid. Right. You know, and then, you know, they fight and then they either resolve it or they go their separate ways. Right. I mean, and I think part of it, though, is because this is basically the 1939 version of product placement, right? It's it's an advertisement for the real ice follies. And so every time Jimmy Stewart says like the ice follies, he has it has to be like, oh, it's brilliant. It's I, I can imagine the Ice Follies guys telling the screenwriter, all right, now you got to say it's storytelling on ice. You got to say it's this, it's that, you know, because they're hyping up this real thing. And so I feel like that's part of the reason why we don't get a sense of it is because it's basically just an advertisement. The screenwriters, Florence Ryerson and Edgar Allan Wolf, we just spoke about in our um, Wizard of Oz episode. Yeah, Wizard of Oz. Be- I mean, of better, course, as we as we talked better about film, Josh. better That's film, yeah, better doing. written. Thank I was going to say, I mean, as we talked about in that episode, that had like a dozen writers, and who knows how much of Edgar Allan Wolf's material just because he was credited actually made it in. But yeah, better script there. It must be tough to be a professional writer and be like, you know, you're the, you're only the second best Edgar Allen that's a professional writer, right? You, you've almost doomed that guy. I feel like though, if that's your name, like if I, and I don't, I didn't look him up. If assuming that's really his actual given name, like you choose that to be credited that way. He could just be Edgar Wolf. And he added that middle yeah. name of his in there. So people would think of that association. So unless he it when, on himself. Unless when he was born, his parents were like, he's going to be a writer and we're going to prove it. We're going to name him Edgar Allen Wolf. And for the rest of his life, we'll put that pressure on him to succeed <laughs> as his namesake did. And it worked. He mm-hmm. was uh, quite a successful screenwriter, at least in uh, in 1939. I- I'm surprised no one was like, hey, you're Edgar Allen Wolf. You got to adapt all the Edgar Allen Poe stories for us. Yeah. <laughs> Would be a, a smart move there. Edgar Allan Wolf has written the cast of Amontillado on ice. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's like the direction that this is going in. Like this is trying to really hard sell you on the idea of of like artistic ambition in ice shows, right? But and I'm cool with that. I love that idea of anyone exploring their art and taking it to the next level and whatever. And um, 
you know, that's why I mentioned Whiplash as an example of that, right? And, you know, from a personal uh, experience, I've written scripts about stand-up comedy, and I'm always like, how do you translate the idea of writing and what you're going for into a cinematic space as opposed to just, oh, I'm going to get an easy laugh. I'm going to try to write a a more resounding joke than that. And it's tough to do that. And as you see by this movie, it doesn't always succeed. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that may be part of it that that for, you know, whatever the reason it was, again, some studio executive is like, these ice follies, we need them in a movie. You know, the poor Edgar Allan Wolf was stuck with trying to figure out how to make that work. And it's not it's not easy. And, and he failed. Well, Florence Ryerson did too. Right. Yeah. There's a third writer too, I believe. They all failed. Um, <laughs> What did you think about the big Technicolor finale? Was that did that work for you, or did that switch, or what did you think of the the weird ass movie within the movie there at the end? Um, I didn't. Uh, so from a yes, because you just brought up two different points there, right? Yes. So from a Technicolor standpoint, I'm all for it. You know, it's it's good with me that they you know kind of are playing with that, and you know, again this year, uh, uh, like uh, we were just talking about. Uh, before we started this episode, poor things, right? You know, so we're still seeing the kind of usage of different uh, palettes and color tones. And I, I understood it. And I actually think it makes sense from a storytelling standpoint here. So from adding the Technicolor, all good. I'm all for that. As far as the movie within a movie, it, which is a often a tough thing to pull off in movies. Um, it uh, it was it didn't work, it, or it went on too long, and there just there just wasn't anything to it. It should have been a five minute like this is the glitz, this is the glamour, and let's move on. Yeah, I, for me the Technicolor like it looks really good, and they obviously took full advantage of it with the movie within the movie, which is full of these like ridiculous like garish costumes and sets and whatever that pop in Technicolor. But I kept thinking like, why is the, like, it maybe would have had more impact if the movie within the movie was in Technicolor, but then the main action remained in black and white, right? Because now we have everything in color, right? Joan Crawford and Jimmy Stewart sitting in the theater watching their movie premiere. They're, they're now in color too. And maybe technologically that wouldn't have, that would have been too difficult. I don't know. But to me, it was like, "Mm, that might've had a little more impact. I think you're right, Josh, and I will compare it to uh, AEW Women's World Champion, Timeless Tony Storm, whose uh, her character is an old-timey movie star. So on TV every week, it's all in color, and whenever she appears, it's an old-timey black and white, and it, it's very effective. Is she the one who got an intro from uh, Ben Mankiewicz from TCM? She- Yes, yes, she did. So. Yeah, that's that was my like. I I saw that on you know like film film people on social media posting that because it was Ben Mankiewicz, not you know. It's a very uh, committed portrayal of this character. Yeah, uh, it's no, quite. I, yeah, I think you'd be abused by it. I was. I I watched the little Ben Mankiewicz segment and I was quite amused, and he seemed like quite a good sport for doing that. So I, he did a great job. Yeah, yeah he, he really went all in on. It. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing about that is, yeah, that movie within the movie. Like, is not, like, believable. I, like, I was thinking, who would, how is this a movie? <laughs> like, how would this be a feature film that all these people were sitting here watching? It has, like, no story and no dialogue. <laughs> it's just a bunch of weird-ass ice dancing. It's It would be today, you would do it as a fathom events, right? Like, hey, we're going to show, <laughs> you know, the the uh, ice capades or whatever the ice follies in the theater and that would be fine i can understand that 
Um, also, that sequence, which goes on way too long, right? They make the same joke, like, at least three times, right? Like, Joan Crawford says, uh, maybe the next picture, I'll be on, uh, I'll be skating, right? And, uh, you know, she's a bad skater, right? Everyone knows that. And he goes, and Jimmy Stewart, just in one way or another, always says, well, I love you, so I'd never let you skate in the pictures, right? And, um, you know, they do that joke like three times. And I, I even marked it down. Like, why didn't you just end this movie right after that first joke? That would have been the way to end Please it. You put know? me out of my misery and end this movie. <laughs> no, but I mean, we've seen the movie. We've seen the idea of like, next time you'll let, you know, that's like the cute rom com button, right? Like, right. Maybe next time you'll let me skate. And like, no, nah, I love you too much to do that, honey. Kiss, do, 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 the end, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, it seemed to me like, they probably spent a lot of money on that big, lavish, ridiculous Cinderella sequence. So they got to include all of it. And yet at the same time, maybe there was like a studio note or something like, well, you have to keep cutting back to our main characters and remind the audience that they're there or whatever. So they just kept recycling that joke. So they have something for Jimmy Stewart and Joan Crawford to say when they cut back to them sitting in the movie theater. I also like how it is just assumed that um, from now on, all the pictures that this guy produces will be involved with ice dancing. <laughs> you know, that's all he can produce is just ice, ice follies films. Yeah. I mean, hey, it worked for Sonia Henney, right? Again, she it's, it's it's astounding to see how many movies, how many variations on Sonia Henney ice skates were produced <laughs> in like between, you know, in like a 10 year period from the mid 30s to the mid 40s. It's It's really yeah. amazing. And they all learn the hard way. There's only one Sonia Henny, right? Right, exactly. I think that is that is sort of the thing here is that when you try to do that and, and copy some unique, weird sensation that another studio has made, and even Sonia Henny, right? There's that 10-year period, but it dropped off, you know, after like four or five Sonia Henny ice skating movies, people were like, okay, we got it. And they kept making them. And, uh, you know, it was diminishing returns, I think. Uh, part of that is probably, you know, an athlete who uh, has peaked also. And that happens to every athlete. They're not as good as when, you know, as their their body diminishes, they can't pull off. Because if you watch like one Sonia Henny movie and you're like, oh, I'm all in on this, then you want her to go bigger and bigger on the next ones, right? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it also is that she couldn't transition into just being an actor. She's not the Dwayne Johnson of, of figure skating or whatever, right? Is that if she wasn't skating, nobody wanted to watch her. And so there was limited opportunities there. Perhaps Joan Crawford is the Dwayne Johnson of figure skating. Mm. Well, but as we said, Joan Crawford could not, could not skate and did not and skate. I don't, I don't, and I'm saying I don't know if Dwayne Johnson can either. Can skate? Can act? <laughs> can skate. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, the analogy is that he can wrestle and also act. <laughs> Whereas Sonia Henney could only right. skate. And my joke was that's why he was. The, never mind. I don't have to explain. Right. The joke no, I, I know. I feel like my. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. Let's move on. But Josh, I was trying to um, figure out what insult you were lobbing at Dwayne Johnson, and I could not get there. It was. It was. Uh, it wasn't really much of an insult. But speaking of Dwayne Johnson, since this is intellectual property, maybe he'll remake it at yeah. some point. You know. Time. I mean, as you as we you pointed out, the the company, the Ice Follies company, still exists in a different form now and is still successful. So maybe we'll get a new version of of of. 
things on ice as a, as a film. You never know. And we make fun of it, but this seems like something like my managers would bring to me and I'd be like, I'll get come up with a take on that. You just give me a day. I got this one. You know, yeah, so. you've already done the background research here by watching this film. <laughs> That's right. So, oh, my career is terrible. All right. Well, uh, that is that is appropriate for this film, then. you know, thematically connected here. My career is the ice follies of 1939 of Dwayne Johnson. Your career is the ice follies of 2023. <laughs> mm-hmm. Happy New Year. Yeah. Oh, right. the ice follies of 2024. That's what Almost. it is when we put this out. It's it spans we, years. Yeah. Well, obviously, we're talking about it uh, 90 years later almost. So uh, I think we should rate this. Yeah. Trash. Yeah. I think we've really, uh, you know, covered all the ground here. So should we rate this out of uh, five uh, racist Native American uh, ice skating acts? <laughs> uh i this is yet another movie where we have to deal with that right yeah, so yeah um although this this is less racist than stagecoach was. right it's a very like brief minor element it's just got the kind of like you know the teepees and the and the headdresses and whatever all these like stereotypical uh you know iconography or whatever so yeah. but it, it didn't surprise me that it showed up all right so out of uh five um, we can use a different ra- uh, standard there. <laughs> okay, five uh, complaining husbands yeah. that are insecure about their wives having careers. Sure, uh, it gets two from me. I'll give it two. That's I think more than fair here. I agree. Yeah, I also am going to give this two insecure husbands out of five. It's uh, I- I've seen plenty of forgettable movies from this era, and you know this is this is as forgettable as any of them. I think so. Two out of five. Dave, how would you rate this? Uh, I, I think I liked it a little bit more than you guys. I, I went with three, um, really? but really it's for the first half hour. It all falls apart once the ice skating starts. Um, once they deliver on the promise of the title, yeah. Dave's out of it. Done, so. done, finished. But uh, yeah, first half hour is all right. What did you like about the first half hour? I, I thought it was a, a funny little showbiz, uh, you know, comedy. Like I liked, uh, you know, Jason brought up Jimmy Stewart, you know, negging his wife, Joan Crawford, but I liked her negging the studio head. I thought that was really funny. Um, I don't know. It just, it fit in with what I expect out of comedies of this era, basically. I think you need to see more comedies from I, this I era. I was going to say, I think like Dave should watch um, like His Girl Friday and the Philadelphia Story, stuff like that, where like, this kind of um patter and back and forth executes on the highest level yeah there's sure. there's so much better material that you can find well i mean I, I i gave it three right Let's okay. josh yeah. josh is now <laughs> negging you a la jimmy stewart right. for you having your own opinion i probably so. deserve it we'll yeah. come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of the ice follies of 1939 Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we are talking about a very much a film of 1939 because it has that in the title, The Ice Follies of 1939. And in terms of the legacy of this film, we're in a sort of weird position because the two main stars of this film who are huge, huge stars of classic Hollywood, Jimmy Stewart and Joan Crawford, we are coming up to talk about two of their much, much more famous films in future episodes. So we're going to kind of maybe uh, yeah. skip past the, their whole career arcs for the moment and get to those later when it's a bit uh, more and relevant. I, 
I think they'd appreciate that. I think they would. Yeah, not to be <laughs> not to be focused on the ice follies. I yeah. will say just one thing related to Joan Crawford because it actually seriously connects to this film is that in the 1981 film Mommy Dearest, which is this uh, notorious, uh, you know, campy biopic of of Joan Crawford starring Faye Dunaway, the opening scene of that film features her going to film Ice Follies of 1939, and I watched all of Mommy Dearest just for the sake of like 30 seconds of Ice Follies content. You see her in the, in like the limo reading the Ice Follies script and then she shows up at the studio and you see her in her uh, like dressing room or whatever getting her skates laced up. And that's literally all. Yeah, but you would have watched that movie anyway at some point. It's a, I, yeah, it's I a mean, notorious it's a, film. It's a campy, it's a campy classic. And, uh, and then Jimmy Stewart, Although he had a great 1939, as we'll talk about shortly, he also had a terrible 1939 because in addition to this movie, he also starred in one of the other big flops of 1939, a like romantic comedy called Made for Each Other that I was considering uh, as well for this episode. So quite the up and down year for old Jimmy Stewart. But like you said, they're contract players, right? He's an A-list star, so he's probably like, you know, if he hits... If he gets two or three out of five and they are they're good, then he's more than done his job. Right. Yeah, that was definitely the thing. And and these actors, as you know, I think we've talked about already, they're so prolific during this era that even if they're in all these major classics, you look at their filmographies and it's filled with movies that nobody remembers anymore. Well, thankfully, we're here to remind them. <laughs> we are. That is good. So, so. Let's talk about the other players. Like you mentioned, Lou Harris, Josh, um, who played Eddie, the best friend. He had an Academy Award nomination for Johnny Belinda. A you win, ever see that I one for Johnny Belinda? Whoa, even better. Yeah. Um, and uh, he won a Golden Globe for his documentary Alters of the World, which he directed. But, um, you know, he was known for being in movies like All Quiet on the Western Front, Battle of the Planet of the Apes. And he played Dr. Kildare. Everyone had like a what we're learning is like this actor played this character in 27 pictures, right? He was Dr. Kildare in like nine movies, I think. Yeah. I mean, before I believe there was a Dr. Kildare TV series later that was better known, but a lot of these characters, you know, before the existence of TV, they just churned out these movies, you know, one or two a year sometimes with these, with these like serialized characters. Um, right. And, and speaking of that, uh, Lewis Stone, who, uh, who played Tolliver, the, uh, the head of the agency, he was Judge James Hardy in the studio's popular Andy Hardy film series, also nominated for Best Actor in 1929 for uh, The Patriot, where he played a Russian count, Josh. And he was in seven movies with Greta Garbo, including Grand Hotel. Yeah, all of these, I you know, actors, as we've been saying, you know, their, their, their filmographies, especially these like character actors who just worked nonstop. It's like hundreds of films almost or whatever. And, and long careers. I mean, Lou Ayers was later, he was nominated for an Emmy for appearing on Kung Fu. So I mean, the, the arc of that career that, you know, lasts for, for many, many decades is, is always amazing to see. Lionel Stander won a Golden Globe for his work in Heart to Heart, Josh, which I think was the 80s. But he's interesting to read about because he was blacklisted, you know, with, with, with the uh, McCarthyism and everything. And there's a play by Eric Bentley, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been? And that kind of um, utilizes his story and his testimony, I think, 
um, as part of the play. Right. He went to, he was able to go to Europe and work fairly, it seemed like fairly steadily in Europe while he was blacklisted. And then of course, eventually came back to Hollywood and worked on heart to heart on TV and other things. I mean, he worked all the way until 1994, which was when he passed away. So again, just these like amazingly long careers is, is cool to see. Dave, you'll be happy to know he was the voice of cup in transformers, the movie. Hell yeah. From the eighties. Um, Jason, as you said, the ice follies is still going in its current form, producing all these Disney on ice shows. And I feel like Disney on ice is one of those things that it's just, it's always, you know, you see it come around every so often. And until watching this movie, I don't think I really considered how weird it is that Disney is on ice. Like what, what kind of a strange ass thing is this for like, I, I don't know. It just, it just seems like watching the ice follies. And in this movie, you watch these production numbers and you're like, these are these are really strange. And yet we still have them in this form and we just kind of take them for granted as a thing for kids. Uh, I think I'm going with Scarlet <laughs> to the new one this year, but uh, in 2024. But it is interesting because we have Disney on ice, but we don't have like Disney in water, but Disney on the mountains, you know, Disney Sky Show or whatever it is. Exactly. Right? It's like, how is thing this being on ice, the thing that has like endured for decades? Like, why? Well, I told you, triple axles, triple Lutzes, triple Lindys, you know, things like that, Josh. Have have you taken Scarlet to this in the past? No, but um, I think this is the year for us to do it. Are you going to show I her do? Ice Follies to well, share her? <laughs> no, she's seen Disney on Ice. She likes it. so, And I think uh, it's a big Moana and maybe Coco year or Encanto, mm. so she'll like that. But um I, I like figure skating when I when the Olymp the Winter Olympics come on. I'm always down to watch some good figure skating. Right. But that's sort of like, I mean, it is artistic, but it's also this athletic thing. They're not wearing yeah, an Olaf costume or so. whatever and trying to stumble around. Do you know that story of the uh, French figure skater, the female French figure skater who was doing like backflips, which is amazing that she could do stuff like that on skates. And like the traditional judges are like, this is not part of our... Uh, culture. This is that part of what we do. And, you know, they, they try to ban her. I forget what ever happened. But the moral of the story is, Josh, uh, she was a black athlete. And of course, mm. she was doing something different. Mm. And uh, old whiteies didn't much care for it. An Shocking. An innovator in the ice skating world, much like Jimmy Stewart in this film. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, not just in not just in the ice skating world, in the in the motion picture world. Also, oh, Josh. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that that just sort of strikes me, and I mentioned this before, is this weird trend of of movies in this era where they have of the whatever year they came out in the title. And, you know, I've seen like the Gold Diggers, some of those Gold Diggers of 1933 is a great film. And we're watching Fashions of 1934, a Betty Davis film, as I watch all of her movies. And I, I don't know why that was that they had to remind people what year it was when they went to see these movies. But I guess that was sort of a way to designate these little franchises. The actor Charles D. Brown, who played uh, one of these big wigs, Mr. Barney in the movie, was in Gold Diggers of 1937. Mm. So along with Grapes of Wrath and Big Sleep and about 100 other movies. I haven't seen Gold Diggers of 1937, but I will say Gold Diggers of 1933 is fantastic. And if we ever cover that year, we'll probably talk about it. So, uh, Josh, who do you think is box office poison today? <laughs> Well, I, I think no one. I mean, this is probably part of our discussion of like movie stars, quote unquote, don't really exist in the same way 
both positively and negatively. Like no one is box office poison, but almost no one is like a guarantee of success as a star, as a movie star because they're in a movie. It's all about the IP and whatever, which is why we probably would get another Ice Follies movie because that's that's what studios think people want to go see versus Tom Cruise or 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 Brie Larson to to go back to the Marvels or whatever. So I don't know. What do you think about that? I think su- superhero movies are becoming box office poison of this year. Yeah, so, maybe. So. Uh, I think I think we I think it would behoove the studios to focus on creating and. Uh, you know, maximizing movie stars again, but we have definitely gotten to the point where uh, it's the the title, not the name above the title, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some efforts right now to make that happen with certain stars. I mean, we just talked about, I think, like last episode, we mentioned Glenn Powell, and you know that movie with him and Sidney Sweeney that's so out, right? lighting the world on fire, right? Well, no, he's <laughs> not. But I think part of the the effort with that film, for example, is to to push both him and Sidney Sweeney as stars whose value is on their own name recognition. That's not an IP movie or whatever. And it's like, hey, go see the movie because these people are in it. And maybe it didn't work there. But I, I think there's efforts to make younger stars like that uh, fit that mold. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Tom Cruise, who I always said the last of the movie stars. And, you know, I know Mission Impossible didn't uh, crush everything this year. But you wonder, I mean, I think Timothy Chalamet proved that he's a box office star with how well Wonka is doing. I wonder if like Margot Robbie now is a box office star or if that was just the Barbenheimer thing or whatnot. She's a great actress. I wonder in the future, like, you know, if she's going to be bankable. But it's few and far between, you know, Scarlett Johansson's usually reliable. And, um, uh, it's just, there's really not many box office names anymore. Right. Right. And I think even with Timothy Chalamet and Margot Robbie, and they're very famous and people, they have their own followings for themselves, but both of those movies have those really strong, you know, IP connections. And if you sell a movie just on Margot Robbie as the star or Timothy Chalamet as the star, I don't know that that's enough to achieve that level of success. Yeah, this is stuff they didn't worry about in 1939. Put the stars in the picture, put a 39 at the end, and let's have some ice dancing. Indeed. Do you have a favorite ice skating movie, Jason? Ooh, good question. Can I uh, can I say the Mighty Ducks because of uh, you know their usage of ice skates in ice hockey? I, I really just asked that so that you could mention the Mighty Ducks again, because I knew you would appreciate it. But I do yeah. love the Mighty Ducks. I think your sister will appreciate if I shout out the cutting edge with DB Sweeney. Yeah, so. I have not seen either of those. Uh, I would. I, speaking of Margot Robbie, I think my favorite ice skating movie is uh, I, Tanya. Yeah, there you go. Classic. How about you, Dave? I mean... The only other one I could think of is Blades of Glory, and I don't even really like that that much. So. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, it's not. not <laughs> you should have. You, you should have gone with Mighty Ducks too. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, anything else you want to say about the legacy of this film, Jason? No. <laughs> all right. Well, that is the Ice Follies of 1939, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Skate on over to our uh, website and our social media. Our website, awesomemovieyear.com, still has that reliable RSS feed for you. We're at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on X Twitter, Bagashker. 
That's what it's going to be called next mm-hmm. year anyway. Sure. Um, I'm Jason Harris Company or J. Harris Company on all the socials. Go for Jason on Letterboxd where you can see my lower rating of this film than Dave's. <laughs> Old stuff for me available and maybe something new uh, by the time this comes out. Probably not. At joshbellhateseverything.com. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at Signalbleed on Twitter, X, and Blue Sky and Letterboxd. And Bagosh. And yeah, that too. All of those things. <laughs> and listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and check out my letterbox by David Rosen. Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Well, looks like this impression's going to live for at least one more show, huh? Big show, because it's me, Jimmy Stork, back with a Palm d'Or winner, you see, and that's called uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. We'll see if that impression gets better. <laughs> Tune in next time for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And thanks for listening. Spoiler alert. It won't. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.